Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Christine N. Duncan, MD, who is an instructor in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and is a pediatric hematologist-oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Duncan is with us today to discuss her article, Clinical Outcomes of Children Receiving Intensive Cardiopulmonary Support During Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant, published in the March 2013 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Duncan. Thank you for having me. It's It's a true pleasure. So, Christy, would you start by giving us some background to your study and what led you to do this study? Um, no, absolutely. Um, it's a study I'm very excited about because it worked with both, uh, involves both stem cell transplant physicians um, and critical care physicians working together in a population that we think is very important. Um, so the basic background is that each year, the number of kids, children, and young adults undergoing stem cell transplants in North America is increasing. Um, that's partially just because of advancements in stem cell transplant, but also because we're transplanting children uh, with an increasing number of diseases. So in the past, uh, the vast majority of children who underwent transplant had leukemia or other cancers. Now we have patients coming to us um, with increased complexity, so metabolic storage diseases, immunodeficiencies, bone marrow failures, and a large, um, large group of other patient populations. Because of that, the growing numbers and the complexity of the patient, we're not infrequently seeing our children need um, intensive cardiopulmonary support during their stem cell transplant admission. Um, those patients, we tend to think, have unique issues so related to their immune suppression, the risk for infection, risk of bleeding, um, and then some toxicities that are specific to stem cell transplant patients, either because of radiation or chemotherapy or because of their underlying disease. Um, so one of the exciting things I think that happened um, in our field with transplant and ICU um, was that we had a group, the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Network, um, which is a group of critical care clinicians from, I think it's over 75 centers across North America, um, who are interested in the critical care of children. That group, I think wisely, um, formed a subgroup really focusing specifically on stem cell transplant patients. Um, this group is made up of stem cell transplanters and critical care physicians, and I see this group really helps. Um, our goal is to investigate the issues of the population. Uh, when we first started meeting in this subgroup, uh, one of the issues we wanted to address early um, was the lack of multicenter data about the outcome of children and young adults who needed intensive cardiopulmonary support or ICU-level support during the hospitalization when they were having the transplant. Um, we thought that that group was a distinct population from children who were readmitted many years after their transplant or even children who had other oncologic diseases. So, the reason we thought that this group was important to investigate um, and investigate in a recent time period uh, was the historic data about these children. Uh, so historically, if you looked at kids who needed ICU-level support during their transplant, they had dismal outcomes. Um, there are some studies that where it approached 100% for children who needed an intensive, uh, invasive, excuse me, ventilation during transplant. Uh, that was actually one of the things um, that motivated me to take part in this group and to work on it um, was back when I was a resident in, on the stem cell transplant service going up to the ICU, and there was this paper that would always surface showing that kids who needed um, invasive ventilation had a 100% mortality rate. So I think for me that seemed high, um, and it also made me worry about the implications for the care of our children if that was the perception um, both on the transplant side and in the intensive care side. So our group um, thought that it had to be better than that. 
you know, we all knew patients who had survived. We all knew patients with, you know, who were, looked great, you know, after their transplant, but had to go through that intense period of time. So there is high-quality literature out there. We're happy with that literature, and we weren't trying um, to detract from that at all. Um, but the challenge with the literature that existed when we started the study was that all the studies were from single institutions, um, which limited the generalizability to some extent. So um, the reasons you would get to an ICU at my center may not be the same as those at an other center, um, and so we were concerned about that piece. The other piece is that basically the outcomes presented were survival um, and risk factors, which I think were very important, but those survival data were never compared to kids who had transplants but actually didn't need ICU support. Um, and so that was another issue that we were concerned about and, and hopes to address. Um, and then the piece that speaks to me most specifically is that there's really little, um, very little published about the long-term outcomes of these children. So if you survived your ICU course and you managed to get out of the hospital after your transplant, what did you look like at a year? Were these children who were then going on to need lung transplants, were they home ventilated, you know, did they have kidney failure, all of those things? We really, it was sort of a black box. We didn't know much of anything about that population at a year. Um, so uh, to, to we decided um, to design a study to try and answer the majority of those questions or those limitations as best we could. So how did you do this study? It's a good question. So, um, so the, we designed a retrospective study looking at the short-term clinical outcomes, so what happened to them during their transplant hospitalization, during their intensive care unit period, um, and then what looked at those, we also looked at those kids at one year post-transplant. Um, we looked at that over a two-year period of time at nine tertiary care facilities, um, so centers that have high-level quality um, transplant patients as as transplant care, uh, as well, well as intensive care. I think the, probably the first most important thing that we did um, was to define what was meant by intensive cardiopulmonary support. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but rather than collecting every child who went to the ICU during their transplant, we wanted to try to capture children who had a significant level of illness um, and then compare them to other children with similar critical illness. Uh, so we ended up, after lots of discussion and debate, uh, defining that group as children who needed at least uh, one of the following things. So continuous positive pre pressure ventilation, so that could be invasive or non-invasive ventilation, uh, dopamine greater infusion greater than or equal to 10 mics per kilo per minute, and there was lots of debate about that number, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Or this whole definition was well debated, um, or the use of any other vasoactive medication, so epinephrine or epi or milirinone in addition to dopamine. So what we're really focusing on with children with cardiac um, or respiratory issues. So once we finally had that definition settled, uh, we decided that we wanted to compare these children who needed that level of support uh, to children who didn't need that level of support during the same period of time. Um, so we then identified three children who were transplanted at the same centers during the same period of time who didn't need ICU support uh, to compare to the population. Um, both of those groups, we collected some baseline data. So why, how old are they? Why did they have the transplant in the first place? Where did they get their stem cells from? Was their donor a sibling? Um, we also looked, importantly, at some markers of pre-transplant cardiac, renal, and pulmonary function. Um, one of the nice things I think about working uh, with stem cell transplant patients is that we all the stem cell transplant physicians tend to be pretty um, picky, I guess, and we require a lot of 
pre-transplant uh, pre data. So all of the children had echocardiograms performed prior to their admission for transplant. Children who were developmentally able or did pulmonary function testing. Uh, we look at GFRs in all of these children. So we had a lot of pre-transplant data. So we could tell if your pre-transplant organ toxicity, if you had pre-transplant organ toxicity, did that put you at a greater risk for needing ICU level support? So then for the kids who needed ICU level support, uh, we looked at as much as we could find about all of those kids. So why did they need to go to the intensive care unit? Um, did they have graft-versus-host disease at the time they went? Did they have clinically significant macroscopic bleeding? Um, did they have a documented infection? So did they have you know, something that we could find based on culture or serology or other infectious uh, testing? Um, we looked at their organ dysfunction score. Um, so those are the pre, sort of the starting point data. We then looked at what happened to them when they were in the ICU. So we looked at uh, most specifically the use of ventilatory support. Uh, so we looked at whether they received non-invasive ventilation, either CPAP or BiPAP, what happened to the children who used that, um, did they end up needing to go to invasive ventilation, did they successfully taper off that level of support, so we investigated that group a little bit. And then we looked in specific um, detail at children who received intense, I'm sorry, invasive ventilation. Uh, the reason we were focused on that group is that is uh, because that's the group who historically does poorest um, during this transplant period. We then uh, looked at the vasoactive medications, so children who received dopamine or epi, nor epi or other medications for how long and what happened, um, and the need for potential need for chest compressions. We then looked at other areas that our group is particularly interested in, uh, such as the use of ECMO in this population, whether children received dia um, dialysis or CBVH. We didn't collect um, a lot of data about those, those things, but we definitely recorded whether it happened and what the outcome was. Um, we then used that literature that exists, the really good literature that is out there, uh, to help us identify um, a list of factors that could potentially increase the risk for mortality in this group. So we looked at their age, their gender, underlying diagnosis, um, all of many things that came from the previous literature. So we had all of that data, so we knew a lot about what was happening to these children in the ICU. Um, and then we looked at what happened to them after. So we looked at their survival to discharge from the ICU back to their transplant unit, and we also looked at their survival to hospital discharge. Um, not for all of those patients, it wasn't always the same number. So some of our kids would get discharged from their first ICU admission and then go to the transplant floor and end up coming back to the ICU. Um, and those children tend to have a poor outcome. Um, very rarely did we see unplanned deaths on the transplant units themselves. That certainly happened in a very small number um, of patients, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the common outcome. Um, we then looked at the hospital discharge for rates for both the children who needed intensive support um, and those who did not. For children who ended up surviving to discharge, um, one of the exciting things I think about the study is that we looked at their, their outcome at one year. So we looked at their overall survival. We looked at their disease-free survival, meaning did they have a relapse of their underlying reason that they had a transplant? And we looked at markers of their cardiac, pulmonary, and renal function. So we compared those things, that those data that we had before the transplant from their echocardiogram, PFTs, GFRs, that type of information to their data afterwards um, and also looked at their performance status. So what did you find when you looked at all of these factors in both the children who required uh, intensive care support and those who did not? 
So I think there's some important things that we looked at. So we ended up from the nine different centers identifying 129 patients who met our criteria for the ICU support, and we compared that their outcomes to 387 kids who did not meet ICU level support during the transplant. Um, things that probably um, would surprise a few people, I think, is that having a malignant disease actually seems somewhat protective or, or a better outcome. So patients who had a malignant disease as their underlying reason for transplant were less likely to need ICU support. Um, I think that's a little bit counterintuitive as we tend to think as of the children with um, advanced cancers as having lots of toxicity coming into transplant um, and having a harder time. We actually found that some of the children, either with immune deficiencies or metabolic storage diseases, those um, diagnoses such as that tended to do, um, do worse and have less, more likely need to go to the ICU. Um, we also found that adequate renal function prior to transplant, so having a GFR greater than 85 mL per minute per 1.73 meters square, um, was a good factor. So children with adequate renal function were less likely to need intensive care unit support. Um, patients who, didn't, who were more likely to need support were those who had a transplant from an unrelated donor. So children who receive an allogeneic stem cell transplant or a transplant that received the stem cells from someone other than themselves um, outside of the family were more likely to suffer complications than those who received um, their stem cells from a matched sibling. The most common reason children ended up going to the ICU wasn't especially surprising to any of us in that it was respiratory failure. Um, I think that's partially because of how we defined the population um, and also because that is uh, and the nature of stem cell transplant care and what people feel comfortable with managing on a stem cell transplant unit. Um, because that was the primary reason, the vast majority of the patients that we studied um, needed some form of ventilatory support. But the big take-home messages, I think there are two of them, um, and the first is that we've made progress. So when we compare our outcomes to the studies done in the past, our survival rates are better, um, or at least comparable. So our survival to ICU discharge was 62% overall, uh, is a bit lower at 58% in kids who needed invasive ventilation. Um, but what's interesting about that is that even though respiratory failure was the most common reason for children to need intensive care level support, it wasn't the most common reason listed as the cause of their death. Um, the most common reason listed for the cause of the death was multi-organ dysfunction, which I think speaks to the complexity of these patients and the um, sort of the, I guess, the fragility of their other organ systems as well. So I think one of the key, fact, the key things that we learned from the study is that we have made some progress. Um, the overall survival to ICU discharge was 62%. Um, it was a bit lower in children who needed invasive ventilation, so those children had a survival rate of 48%. Um, unfortunately, that's still not good enough. So I think we still have a lot of work to do in our population um, and that the rate of mortality is still unacceptably high in the po this population. Um, what is interesting to note about the cause of death in these children uh, is that even though respiratory failure was the most common reason that children needed to go to the intensive care unit, uh, the most common cause of death was multi-organ dysfunction, um, which I think speaks to the nature of this population and the fragility of their organs and um, the therapy, due to the therapies that they've been through or the stem cell transplant process uh, in and it itself. We were able from that list of factors that we looked at to identify some things that were, if they were present at the start of ICU support, uh, were associated with survival. So things that probably, you know, were helpful for various reasons or not reasons. Um, 
So the most common being a lack of engraftment. So that, too, I think is counterintuitive. I think we tend to think of the children who have not had their engraftment, which we define in the transplant population, as an ANC greater than 500 for three days in a row. So I think we tend to think of those patients as being more fragile, um, uh, with more toxicity, and that's certainly true. Um, but when we looked at this population, those were the patients who I think when their pounds came in were able to handle whatever their insults was. Um, children who did not have macroscopic bleeding, so clinically significant bleeding at the time they went to the ICU, uh, were more likely to survive to discharge as well. Um, the part that excites me, I think, the most about this study are, is the one-year outcome. Um, and like one of the things I think we discovered in our initial police subgroup meetings uh, was that the ICU physicians and the stem cell transplant physicians saw this, very, this part, part very differently. Um, some of our critical care physicians, having not seen these children at one year, were concerned that the quality of life was either suboptimal because these children were needing ventilation or not able to participate in life and not able to go to school. From the stem cell transplant side, I think those of us who take care of these patients had the preconceived notion that they're all okay at a year. You know, if you make it that far, um, you do well. So we looked at it, which is, I think, the best way to answer um, debates such as that is with data. Um, so of the children or young adults who survived a hospital discharge, so those children and young adults who were able to make it out of the ICU, who were able to make it out of the hospital, um, we found no difference in their overall survival at one year. Um, we also found no difference in their relapse-free survival. That, I think, um, makes a whole lot of sense uh, intuitively. But then when we looked at other things, we were pleased to report that the performance status based on um, Karnofsky or Lansky performance score dependent on their age, their FEV1 on their PFTs, the use of home oxygen, the cardiac shortening fraction from ECHO, and their creatinine as a surrogate for renal function was no different than children who didn't need ICU support. So um, I think the take-home message about those one-year outcomes is if we are able, working in partnership between uh, intensivists and stem cell transplant physicians, to get these children safely through their hospitalization and get them discharged, there's no reason to believe that they don't have the same outcomes or the same success of the children as children who didn't need to go to the ICU during transplant. Which is a tremendously encouraging finding. I think so. You mentioned that some of these children might have had more than one episode of requiring intensive support during that initial um, post-transplant period. How did you handle those in terms of were there enough of them to look at? Is is that a risk factor for a worse outcome or... Um, what kind of numbers a, did you have? It's a really good question. We didn't look at their um, their their subsequent intensive care hospitalizations or visits in as great of detail as we did um, for the children who went there the first time. We did look at their survival from that. Um, we didn't have enough numbers to do um, meaningful statistics on that patient population, but the general sense of looking at the numbers is that those that is a risk factor um, for not doing as well. So I think in future studies, that would be an interesting population to focus on a little bit more and to collect more data about, um, because I think you know, all of us who work in this field can think of children who go back and forth two, three, four times um, and with a little bit of a pit in our stomach, just knowing that you know, every time they're at more risk, their organs are more compromised. Um, but we didn't have, based on our study, enough information to give real specific data about that group. 
Yeah, and certainly those of us in the ICU, when we see those kids coming back, get that same uh, feeling sure. in the pit of the stomach. Why yeah. do you think the children who had malignancies um, seem to do better than the children with non-malignant diseases or the other way around? Why did the mm-hmm. children with non-malignant disorders do worse? I think a lot of it has to do with the nature of the patient population. Um, so uh, one of our transplant centers uh, transplants a large number of children with inherited metabolic diseases, things like Hunter's, um, Hurler's disease, um, adrenal leukodystrophy. Those children often come into transplant with organ toxicities um, that are harder to manage perhaps. So uh, pre-existing liver dysfunction or difficulty with the respiration at baseline. Uh, another large portion of our population were children with osteoporosis, um, which is an unusual disease. Um, for those not familiar with it, basically the osteoblasts function normally. So these children are able to lay down bones very well, but the osteoclasts don't work. So they're not able to remodel their bone. Um, osteoclasts are stem cell derived. And so we can cure this disease with a stem cell transplant, but children have to be identified very early. Um, if not, they progress to blindness, deafness, uh, and ultimately death due to, for the neurologic issues, pinching off of the cranial nerve foramina um, where the cranial nerves exit, uh, and also respiratory issues. So when we think about these kids who have, you know, children, especially with the cartilaginous portions of your rib cage, if that is all solid, not moving bone, it's very difficult um, to help support those children respiratorily during transplant. Mm-hmm. They also have some intrinsic disease, uh, degree of lung disease, which we don't fully understand in the community. They also have narrow nasal openings and passages due to this accumulation of bone. So I think that those two populations, just due to the nature of their illness and what the children come in with, have unique toxicities. They also all tend to be um, very young, so that population is very enriched with, with babies. The other group of children um, who we transplant in uh, increasing numbers are children with immunodeficiency. So children with severe combined immunodeficiency with Wiscott-Aldrich probably being the two of the more common. Those children can come into transplant having presented with unusual infections, with PCP, with disseminated varicella, with lots of things that make them higher risk during their transplant. With children um, who have infections before transplant, who have leukemia, um, generally we want their infections to be completely controlled um, and treated for many weeks before they come into transplant. The challenge with some of the immunodeficiency kids is that their immune system is never going to be there. Yeah, they you have can't their get transplant. there. Yeah, you can't get there. So you can control it with antivirals, with antibiotics, but you're never in that sweet spot where you think you've had enough of the treatment of the infection um, for a long period of time. So I think we always worry about the risk of infection, and those children certainly do, you know, go to the ICU with respiratory viral illnesses or other things um, that are really difficult to manage. So I think, you know, it's not not a good thing to have cancer. It's not a good thing to have cancer going to transplant, but I think there are unique things about that other population um, that make their transplant course a little bit more complicated. What are the limitations of your study? 
So I think there are two um, pretty big limitations to the study. Uh, the first is that it's retrospective. Um, so we looked at a two-year period of time, went back through the medical records at each of these centers, um, and there are just inherent flaws in retrospective studies, either missing data and actually reported data. We tried our best to um, limit those inaccuracies. We had a central review of every um, patient, that, you know, all the patient data, going back and forth to make sure everything made sense. But no matter how hard you try, it's still a limitation. Um, working with the policy group, as I've mentioned, we're trying to go forward and do a multi-center prospective study so that we can capture all of the information that we need. There's no missing data um, and that we can do that in real time. And I think that will be a very helpful contribution to the literature. Uh, sort of in keeping with that, another problem is a lack of follow-up. So even though the children who survive from the ICU are have the same one-year outcome and get discharged home, have the same one-year outcome as children who didn't go to ICU, we're still talking about a stem cell transplant population. And so within that population, we quote all of these families a 10% mortality rate by day 100 after transplant. After that, we go on to see um, either you know, death due to relapse disease or transplant complications. So when you look at one year, the population you started with in the beginning, in some cases, can be decreased by as much as a third. Mm -hmm. So the amount of information that you can get at one year is limited. Um, and then some of the other limitations being that some people who do very well go off to live their lives and don't come back for their follow-up. That's pretty rare in pediatric central transplant, but it's always a concern. Um, or, you know, the difficulty finding information. Uh, the people who worked on this study at all the centers did an amazing job trying to track down pulmonary function reports and trying to do all of those pieces. No matter how hard we all worked, there are some missing data, um, and it's difficult to try and deal with that. I think that, too, will be addressed in a prospective study, um, looking at this moving forward. So that's our, our next step in relation to this project. So what are the implications of this study um, for both um, intensive care unit physicians and for hematology oncology clinicians? So I think the most important thing to know is that children who receive intensive cardiopulmonary support can survive. Hopefully I'll never walk into an ICU again and see a paper sitting there that says 100% <laughs> mortality rate. Um, so it's important that people know that. I think it's important how we counsel our families. I think it's important in the, even in educating you know, our physicians, our nurses, the respiratory therapists, everyone who takes care of these patients, and that they're not participating in a futile effort. Um, the other piece of that is that we need to keep moving. We're not, at a, we're not our survival's not high enough. So we need to keep working with interventional trials, prospective trials, all of those things to try and figure out how to address this population and how to understand the toxicities that are most significant um, to this population. You know, is it the pulmonary hemorrhage? Is it interstitial pneumonitis? What are the key things that are really affecting our children and how can we improve that going forward? Do you think there are going to be new indications for stem cell transplant coming down the road that also might um, be factors in ICU outcome and other outcomes from stem cell transplant? I think, I think there are. The way the transplant field is moving um, is really an increase in the transplant for non-malignant disorders. You know, we will always transplant children with leukemia, you know, relapse leukemia or induction failure. That will always be, you know, probably our biggest population. Um, but as we've expanded and more centers are transplanting the children with adrenal leukodystrophy, Crab A disease, with those types of diseases, I think that that will affect the outcomes or affect the RIC level care. 
The other big area um, that is not commonly transplanted, especially in pediatrics, um, but is growing in uh, a number of transplants in adult population, is that for autoimmune diseases. And so those patients have um, somewhat counterintuitively uh, an autologous transplant where they receive stem cells from themselves after receiving chemotherapy with the hope that we can basically reset the immune system. Um, in adults, there have been trials done for lupus, scleroderma, um, other populations. People talk about moving that to pediatrics for children with um, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, for Crohn's disease, for other bad immune, autoimmune type diseases. I think that population, because of pre-existing toxicity, um, because of our lack of experience as a field as a whole, uh, transplanting those children, if it becomes more common, when we start to do more of those transplants, it would be surprising to me if we didn't see an impact on our ICU population. Do you have any further comments you'd like to make? Um, no, I thank you so much for letting uh, let me talk about this great group that we work with and this, this study that we're so proud of. Um, I'm happy to speak with intensivists and to get that information out there that you're doing a really great thing, and we are incredibly proud of the progress that we have made in the past 10, 20 years in taking care of these children. Um, we hope that we continue to have a growing population of long-term survivors uh, that we can learn for, from as well. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Christy. Thank you. My pleasure. We have been talking with Dr. Christine N. Duncan from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, discussing the article, Clinical Outcomes of Children Receiving Intensive Cardiopulmonary Support During Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in March 2013. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former President of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.